This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello, and welcome to Critical Point, brought to you by Milliman. I'm Karen Rudolph, a principal and consulting actuary at Milliman, and I'll be your host today. In this episode of Critical Point, we're going to be digging into the details of statutory valuation for life insurers. In particular, this episode will give listeners an inside the company look at the life insurance examination process, especially when it comes to regulatory reviews around the principal-based reserve valuation. Joining me today are Sarah Tice, qualified actuary for Woodman Life, and Catherine Murphy, Qualified Actuary with John Hancock. Both of today's panelists have been kind enough to spend this time with me so that we can share some firsthand experiences around the regulatory review of PBR valuations within their respective companies. But first, a bit about each. Sarah has 20 years of experience in the insurance industry, ranging from group long-term disability for the first five years and individual life insurance for the past 15 years. Sarah's expertise has always been in valuation, where her responsibilities include cash flow testing, monthly reserve reporting, and principal-based valuations. She has served in the appointed actuary role for Woodman Life for five years and is Woodman's qualified actuary. Catherine has worked in the insurance industry for over 25 years. She has held positions in finance, pricing, ALM, transformation, experience analysis, and valuation. She serves as the deputy appointed actuary with key responsibilities for principal-based reserves and cash flow testing. While our panelists have a vast depth of knowledge around life insurance valuation topics, some of our listeners might need a quick intro to principal-based reserves or PBR. So what is this PBR method, you may ask? Um, It's a new method of determining US statutory reserves that better quantifies product risks. For new issues, It replaces the old formulaic approach where not only the calculation method, but also the assumptions used were described or prescribed under a one size fits all approach. Those assumptions were locked in from issue. As a result, the assumptions at any given valuation date in the future do not necessarily align with the current realities of the insurance policy or the economic environment. PBR replaces this with an approach that considers a range of future economic scenarios and relies more on company-specific assumptions that can change over time as company experience emerges. Some of these assumptions are subject to regulatory guardrails to keep outlier experience in check. In understanding the complexities of this shift from formulaic to principle-based, the key is knowing that an actuarial projection model is required to generate future liability and asset cash flows using the company's specific experience Uh, such as mortality, persistency, premium payment behavior, and investment policies, among other things. All of these inputs are fundamental to developing the reported reserve output. It turns a bright spotlight on a company's experience study process and its governance and modeling frameworks. So this is a woefully brief, but hopefully uh, helpful description to let our listeners not so familiar with PBR concepts in on what we're gonna be talking about today. I suppose the one takeaway before we begin our conversation 
is that PBR is a very calculation-intense, assumption-intense framework, and as a result, actuarial staff can be initially overwhelmed getting the process started. I expect we will hear a bit more about that from our two guests today. So that's a, a background on PBR, but it's also important to know that it is the qualified actuary that the company looks to to perform all of these aspects of the PBR valuation. Um, to level set our listeners then, uh, can, can each of you describe the lines of business you've been assigned to serve as qualified actuary? Catherine, let's start with you. Thank you very much, Karen. I am accountable for life insurance, annuities, and long-term care. So I have a very broad spectrum. And is your, is your staff equally distributed among those different lines of business? Mostly, yes. Okay, Sarah, how about you? For Woodman Life, I am the qualified actuary for our life business. And I could just briefly go over what life products that includes. We have a whole life product, both a simplified issue and a fully underwritten. And then we have just your traditional term insurance. And then we also have uh, two universal life with secondary guarantee products that we sell right now that I'm responsible for. Um, One is our index universal life and the other is more of a protection type product with a secondary guarantee. Hmm. So you have all three uh, reserving components in your portfolio there. Yes, yes, we do. We calculate the net premium reserve, the deterministic reserve and the stochastic reserve on different products. Yep, yep. And is that true for you too? Yes, it is. On at John Hancock, we also calculate on the life side the three components whenever it's applicable. Great. So, so we have here experts on all legs of the three-legged stool. <laughs> That's great. So, in um, in the valuation manual, there was this transition period that went from 2017 through 2019, where a company was given the opportunity, it wasn't mandatory, to go ahead and and adopt um, life PBR uh, during those years for new issues. So whether your first year was during that transition period or whether it was sort of the 2020 mandatory year, I expect that there were a lot of pain points. If you think back on the first year that you went about calculating, getting your system set up, getting your models prepared, um, getting your experience studies in line, all your ducks in a row, um, can you provide some color on the differences in the valuation routine, either you know going from formulaic, all formulaic to sort of now we have this PBR thing to do, or if you were an early adopter, maybe your first experience in reporting PBR versus where you are today, say 2021 year end. Yeah, I can go first on that. Um, uh, Woodman Life, we uh, adopted PBR in 2020. Um, really the reason we held off. There are a couple of reasons. I think a lot of the PBR was still getting ironed out and the valuation manual was still changing quite a bit. So we held off. We were also just limited with our resources. But during 2020, um, yes, we did have a lot of pain points during that year. It was a stressful year. Probably one of our biggest challenges is just getting PBR calculated, checked, validated, within the time frame that we wanted to report it out to management. Um, that first year, we were still unfamiliar 
with what was going to cause the change in the reserve with this assumption change, how much change in reserve would that cause with margins, just developing margins. We were still working on that to figure out how all that should be done. A lot of it was just figuring out PBR and having enough um, validations and checks done that we felt comfortable reporting it. Good to hear, Sarah. So at John Hancock, I would say that on our front, um, we started implementing PBR with our 2018 products. Some We gradually selected which product we could do so that we would not have to convert all of the products all at once. So it was just more spreading to make sure that we could uh, ha- handle the work from a resourcing standpoint. The other thing is uh, John Hancock is a company affiliated with a Canadian company, Manulife Financial. And Canadian accounting rules already require us to do principle-based type of reserving. So we have been doing a lot of very similar calculations as uh, what PBR requires. So we had our experience study. We have been discussing margins and so on. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve on a number of things just because of the experience we've had on our Canadian accounting regimen. Mm-hmm. Catherine, would you say that your models had a sort of a head start in being ready, PBR ready at that point? I would say yes, definitely on the deterministic side. The stochastic is still a little bit of a challenge uh, just to make sure that all the runs complete in time in a stable environment and there's no model crashes. And of course, analyzing stochastic reserve, it's a little bit more challenging Uh, The Canadian rules don't require us to do stochastic on the life side. So that was a little new. Uh, So that's where we've been uh, focusing our energy on as well. I suppose one of the pain points, and and I think I've heard you both mention it in some fashion, is is runtime on the stochastic reserve side. It's just not knowing what to expect that first go round. And I expect that practice makes perfect. Um, And maybe you did some preliminary runs so that you would know how much time to leave before reporting deadlines. All right, let's turn our attention now that we have sort of a platform with respect to the lines of business and the types of reserves that you're calculating, uh, turn our attention to the regulatory review. What we're really focused on here is there is an NAIC Department of PBR review. And this effort is led by the California Department of Insurance. Um, For our listeners not as familiar, that the regulators, I think, knew at the outset that this paradigm that we're talking about of PBR would be difficult for all states to review with the same degree of rigor, right? So each state insurance department isn't necessarily staffed on an actuarial side to the same level as states that have maybe more domiciliary companies. So early on, I think the system that was put in place was this specific Department of PBR Review. It's led by the California Department, um, as I mentioned, and they conduct on-site reviews or virtual reviews of a company's PBR valuation. Now, that encompasses both California domicile companies and and companies that are not domiciled in California. They work with the domiciliary states 
um, regulator, however, right, is, is my understanding. Um, not that I've lived through one of these, but I have seen this thing called the, the, you know, the questionnaire that they put out. But before we get into the questionnaire, let's, let's talk about um, what did your company's first, you know, California Department of PBR review look like? In other words, what year were they fixated on reviewing? Was that one of the transition years or was it 2020? How long after you actually performed your reserve calcs did that review get scheduled? Was it on-site or virtual? You know, how many examiners were on the team? Give us a sense of the complexion of that review. Sarah, do you want to start with that? Sure, sure. Yes, I'd love to. Like I said earlier, 2020 was our first year with PBR. And so 2020 was the year that California did a detailed review on our life portion of our PBR. We also have variable annuities, but they were just focusing on our life products. So we submitted our report by April 1st, as all companies are required to do. And then from there, um, they sent us the list of questions. So once we received the questions in June, we responded back to them approximately three months from when we received their questions. And then from there, they provided us a letter of their findings, suggestions, recommendations on changes that should be made to our either our PBR processes, our reports, maybe they found minor mistakes. Um, after we received their letter, we had a 30-minute virtual meeting with two actuaries from California to go over that letter. And after having that meeting, then they sent that letter with their suggestions um, to our CEO, and he was required to respond to each of their suggestions within, I believe it was the next two months. So that really provided us the opportunity to speak with the CEO, explain what PBR was, and how we were going to tackle each of their issues. Pretty thorough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catherine, is that uh, parallel your experiences? Uh, Definitely very similar to our experience. Our first uh, review was in 2018, uh, at which point they gave us uh, their list of questions in July, and uh, we had some uh, time to review the questions, another list of questions that came out later, and then finally their recommendation letter that went to the seal. So very similar. Overall, the process is anywhere from five to 11 months depending on uh, which year they do the review. Once, though, in 2020, we had a little bit more of an in-depth analysis, which means that uh, the intention was California regulators were planning on coming to visit us on site for three days and go through every component of of the report, whether it's product, assumption, margins, governance, controls, basically every piece that uh, we have from a PBR standpoint. So the intent was for them to visit us in our office in Boston and along with regulators from our domicile state and go through a full exam. But of course, the pandemic had different plans. So we ended up doing the three-day review virtually. Okay. So uh, every day we'd meet for four or five hours because of the time differences. So they recognized we could not last until 8 p.m. on our end and they didn't want to start at 
6 a.m. on their end either. So uh, we had four or five hours of discussions. And those discussions, really, we brought in some experts so we could go into a lot more detail. So we had our experience analysis team join in and they answered all kinds of questions. We had our modelers doing a walkthrough of the models and so on. So uh, a lot more uh, detailed analysis that happened that one year. I think they do that every five years. Okay, so you're saying that because you adopted early, you you did have someone from the California department look over your shoulder, so to speak, um, on those calculations uh, that you reported for 20, 2018 and that there was a more in-depth for 2020, correct? Correct. And was there anything for the 2019 valuation? Very similar to 20, 2018. So uh, a, a letter with questions, uh, some time for us to respond, a second letter, more time for us to respond, and mm-hmm. finally the conclusion of uh, the 30-minute meeting with the regulators walking through their management letter that went to the CEO. So we'll get to the CEO in a little bit, but it sounds to me like the the regulatory review actuaries are also sort of learning from their own experiences, uh, given that there's a little more rigor put into you know the 2020 version of the calculations. And that's correct. As you're saying it, yeah. And as it turns out, because I had just joined the team, it was a fantastic learning experience on my part. <laughs> Sink or swim, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely. But it worked out. <laughs> so besides the questionnaire, what aspects of the regulatory review strike you as being deep dives into the valuation exercise? So from, from my uh, point of view, I always wonder, you know, if I was an examining regulator and I was going into a company, obviously I'm, I'm looking through a lot of data, a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of output, but what aspects can you remember of your review that the regulator was really wanting to see some deep numerical analysis on the reserve calculations? Was that even a an aspect of the review? I believe on our part, it was in the detailed review, the 2020 analysis, if I remember correctly, where we had to demonstrate our NPR calculation. Mm-hmm. They're definitely a lot more familiar with NPRs and the uh, formulaic reserve. So we could walk them through our calculation directly and show them in the model how things were modeled as mm-hmm. well. And was, Catherine, was that for a term product, do you remember, or ULSG or both? I'm not 100% sure. I think it was a term product. Sarah, does that? That is very, yeah, yeah, very similar. Um, They had asked us to provide audits from our valuation software of the net premium reserve, and that was both on our term certificates and our ULSG product. Okay. Yeah. So my my understanding is also that the NEIC has their own uh, system that they they either run sort of a sample product through to calibrate a company's calculations on given policies. Is do you recall any any requests for using your own system to determine an NPR, say on a, a prototype cell? I don't recall that at all. Nothing like that. I don't either. I know that the VM31 requirements indicate that the the actuary has to report 
a lot of detail around the deterministic reserve. In other words, you know, show us that all the cash flows that go into the deterministic reserve, show us the discount rate, you know, show us the calculation where you bring everything back to the valuation date. I assume that that's something the regulators looked at closely as well. Yes. Yep. Us too. All right. Let's talk about, about any surprises in the regulatory review and that data request list. So the questionnaire that we've been talking about, that was the result of the California department's initial sort of go over of all of your data and your reporting. They issue this questionnaire to the qualified actuary. I've seen some of those for, for clients that we've helped um, sort of struggle through the responses and such. And I'm wondering, can you describe how lengthy yours was when you first saw it? And were there any surprises? In particular, what I recall is that the questionnaire often branched out into sort of unexpected areas um, of governance or modeling systems and, you know, platforms and just questions around things that you might not have expected to have to answer. Catherine, do you recall anything like that? I don't recall exactly. Well, in 2018, I was not part of the team, so I have not, uh, I don't, I don't have any such recollection. But looking at the history of uh, the detail of the question has been quite surprising to me because the first year they asked us over 90 questions on life products. And that's very lengthy. Some of the questions are fairly simple. Did you mean this or did you mean that? And some of the questions that could be, it would be more effective if your report including this, this type of description. But other questions sometimes were really justification mm-hmm. on why you think your assumption makes sense. And uh, we would go back and uh, justify. We felt comfortable with our overall PBR report and PBR reserve. I don't think at any point in time did our PBR reserve was in question, the level of the reserve. It was mostly how do we improve the overall documentation? And I think that the California regulators have really the best interest of the industry setting the standard in how much documentation mm-hmm. would be beneficial. Sarah? For the 2020, we received just uh, around 75 questions. And like Catherine said, yes, some of them are easy to answer. Did you mean this? Like she said, but I think almost half of our questions involved uh, our governance and controls. Um, We knew we weren't quite there yet. So I think some of their intention with the governance and controls questions was to show us how we do need to improve. What can we do? Which was a lot of their recommendations, the letter as well then. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering now how your um, chief executive officer level managers received the, um, the questionnaire and or the letter that they got from the regulator. So just to square away um, the reason for the question, you know, C-suite managers don't typically get letters from regulators. And so here's a first time occurrence and they're probably not as familiar um, with what's going on in the actuarial valuation world as 
you as the qualified actuary are. So maybe you can recount um, what you did to educate your senior leaders um, about this regulatory review and, and some of the feedback that you got. Catherine? Yes, thank you, Karen. When uh, the CEO received the letter, uh, we wanted to make sure that we put some context into all of this. So we are lucky that we have a good relationship with our CEO and uh, we could pick up the phone and give them a little bit of background. Uh, so we explained to them that this was this was just normal process for principle-based reserving, principle-based reserving being a new type of uh, reserving methodology. So we were able to explain to them what was happening, why we were uh, uh, going through this exam with California and what the outcome was. The big thing was we wanted to make sure that we assured them that the recommendations that uh, California made, uh, whether it made sense to, to us or not, whether we agreed or not. And then we also assured them that our reserves level was right and we had some areas to improve, mostly on the documentations front mm -hmm. and uh, maybe tidying up a little bit on the governance. Thanks, Catherine. Sarah? Yeah, this letter was something new that the CEO had received. I don't know if they have ever received a letter like this before, but we were lucky because our CFO is an actuary and he um, actually sat in on the 30 minute uh, meeting with the two actuaries from California. So that was nice. I know he briefly provided a update to our CEO. So when I met with him and explained it to him, walked through the suggestions, how we were going to tackle each of them, um, it was easier. He was already familiar with it. I let him know too that this is an annual letter we will be receiving. It's not unique to company, but PBR is important. It stresses the importance in a company of how important PBR really is. Yes. Yeah. And I I can um, agree that from what I've seen um, on, on the reviews, it is a lot more focused on documentation of the rationale of the qualified actuaries decisions with respect to assumptions and margins and such, and not necessarily, of course, they always have an eye on solvency. Of course, that's their job, but it's, it's not framed as a challenge, you know, to the qualified actuary or to the company, but rather let's work together and figure out, you know, what your um, thought process is in principle-based reserve valuation. So another challenge I think that you might agree with is just keeping up with the developments around principle-based reserves, because this is, um, as the regulators say, a living document, the valuation manual. And you know they're working right now, as I said earlier, on non-variable annuity requirements. And, and this will go on for some time. So one of the other key developments is the testing of a new economic scenario generator. So let, let's just talk briefly about how you keep up with what's going on sort of in the queue. And let's use the economic scenario generator as an example. There have been some uh, life actuarial task force calls around the generator. Most recently, one to sort of announce the kickoff of a field test. I don't know if your companies are participating, but there were some acknowledgements that reserves, um, if you're calculating a stochastic or deterministic reserve, 
chances are good that it will increase because of the emphasis on the new generator towards a low for long type characteristic. So Sarah, how do you keep up with developments? The primary way I keep up is just through emails. I read about each of the APFs that are being reviewed or have been accepted. I also um, participate in the calls that discuss the different APFs. Um, just looking over the red line version of the valuation manual, I know that's an annual change, but that's another way that I like to keep up. Um, as far as like participating in the field test, Woodman Life is a smaller to mid-sized company. So we don't have the resources to participate in a lot of those, but I do go look at the results to see how will this impact Woodman Life and our PBR reserves. Mm -hmm. On our front, yes, we do try to keep up as much as we can. There's so many changes, some very, very large changes that are brewing uh, at the moment. Within John Hancock, we do have some resources who are dedicated to making sure that there is awareness of all the changes that are coming up. And in addition to that, several of us have been tasked to follow a specific issue mm -hmm. and then re report back. I also personally listened to majority of the Life Actual Task Force calls on Thursday afternoon. There are a number of calls as well with the ACLI to hear what other industry leaders are thinking about the various issues. Of course, reading the red lines, the all the amendment proposal form. When I joined this team, I did not appreciate how much of the work would be on staying ahead of all the changes, staying on top of all the changes that are coming up on the regulatory front. I had not appreciated that, but it's fun. Yeah, it makes you the subject matter expert within your company on, on PBR. Yes. Yeah, because you know what's brewing, as you say. Exactly. <laughs> and there are, there are some big changes brewing. Um, so one other topic I wanted to touch on today is now, you, you know, you have broad responsibilities, PBR is one of them, but cash flow testing, I believe, is also in your wheelhouse as far as responsibilities in your company. During the examination process um, for PBR, my sense was that the examiners, it was not unusual for them to, you know, sort of call for the cash flow testing documentation, the AOM. Were they interested in seeing consistencies between cash flow testing and PBR and maybe where inconsistencies developed, finding out why those um, were inconsistent with respect to assumptions or methods? On our side, we just talked about the PBR report with California. Okay. So the cash flow testing report would be on the purview of our domicile regulators, and that's where we could get some questions if, uh, if applicable but there's very little overlap. Sometimes we will share that some assumptions are the same as uh, cash flow testing, or sometimes they're different because PBR requires something different, uh, but they were not explicitly reviewing both at the same time. Yep, yep, that was similar to us. Um, they weren't reviewing the cash flow testing and their questions they had asked the, ask a couple of questions as to how PBR does compare to cash flow testing. One example was, do we develop assumptions for cash flow testing and PBR 
using the same methods? Um, are the base assumptions consistent? But it, they didn't ask for any details or our AOM or anything. So it was primarily geared towards the PBR only. Okay. And this kind of, this topic that I'm going to bring up kind of points back to the keeping up with PBR developments idea. The Academy of Actuaries periodically hosts like continuing education seminars around PBR. It's, I think we call it the boot camp, PBR boot camp. Maybe you have attended one of those in the past. But the most recent PBR boot camp webinar was virtual, and the um, panelists were primarily from the California Office of PBR Review. And during that webinar, the concept of independent reviews was emphasized. And I kind of picked up on that. But did either of your companies obtain any type of independent review? Now, whether that was a review of the documentation, review of assumptions, or a review of the model itself, can you speak to whether that was performed by a third party or maybe internal to your company where you would have a similarly qualified actuary not directly involved in the valuation who was doing that review? Catherine, do you have? Any comments on that? Sure. I would say that the first time that we wrote a PBR report, we had an external party reviewing it to make sure that we were following all the expectation and what uh, VM31 was requiring. So that was the starting point. Subsequent to that, uh, most of our reports are being done by several individual contributors, and then we have two or three other actuaries who review to make sure that the whole story hangs together, that we are consistent in uh, messaging and uh, that we are disclosing the right information. With respect to other reviewers, if we do change any of our assumptions, we generally reach out to other actuaries outside of the organization to do some form of a peer review, but it's not necessarily just PBR related, it's overall. Um, I had also attended that PBR boot camp, and yeah, that's what I got out of it too. Is they were really stressing the focus on reviewers, a peer review, um, because PBR is still immaterial for Woodman Life. Um, we haven't had an external review of our models or PBR report or anything yet, as California recommended. We will probably have that done as PBR becomes more material for Woodman. For our models, we had a pricing actuary at Woodman Life conduct a peer review on our models to make sure everything that should line up with the pricing models did line up on the pricing models. So that's where we are today. Good. And yeah, the benefits of an independent review, I think, are beneficial for the company, <clears throat> for the comfort of the regulator. You know, I've often wondered if the independent review is performed and the regulator asks for it, what are they looking for? But um, I, I think that uh, that answer is TBD. So <laughs> as Sarah says, as the valuation gets more material over time, then independent reviews will probably become more prevalent. Do you have any closing thoughts around your company's to-do list for improving your PBR valuation as a result of these California reviews? I can answer that first. Um, as California pointed out, I noted before our governance and controls, that was the big item we need to focus on. We knew 
working on PBR throughout 2020 and 2021, that wasn't our primary focus. We knew we weren't there, but just California pushing us, um, make us setting up a plan for this. It really will help in the long run. It'll add confidence to our models and just make everyone understand them a little better. So that's going to be our major to-do list for the next year or three years down the road too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, on our side, I think uh, some of the recommendation that California we've implemented already and they, they have not been uh, necessarily very much time consuming, but we are the closest to the models, to the documentation. So we're probably the most critical of the work that we do. Uh, we always have opportunities to make things better. Probably the biggest uh challenge that we have over the next year or so is making sure that uh, the stochastic results get run without crashes and uh, give us results that uh, we can truly understand. We've come to the end of our time, and I want to thank Sarah and Catherine for joining us today. Thank you very much, Karen, and thank you very much, Sarah, as well. Yeah, thank you, Karen, and thank you, Catherine. I enjoyed this podcast. Your insights will be helpful to our listeners in better understanding the experiences of companies with respect to the PBR regulatory review process. You've been listening to Critical Point, presented by Milliman. If you enjoyed this episode, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with your colleagues. Until next time.